Good evening and thank you for joining us this hour. Happy holidays. Tonight, we start back in May. It was a Monday night just after 8.30 Eastern time when news broke that shook the entire country. Politico had the once-in-a-lifetime scoop about a draft opinion. Supreme Court has voted to overturn abortion rights. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled, Justice Alito writes, in initial majority draft circulated inside the court. That scoop, that headline, changed everything. And it certainly changed the course of the midterm elections. In that moment, the stakes of the upcoming November election, they skyrocketed. It gave Democrats over a month and a half head start to start campaigning on that issue before the opinion was handed down in late June. And on June 24th, the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, the law of the land for nearly 50 years, and stripped away reproductive rights for millions in this country. Just six weeks later, the first test of abortion rights at the state ballot box came in Kansas. Voters in Kansas headed to the polls in early August to vote on a constitutional amendment that would strip away abortion rights from the state constitution. And in Kansas, of all places, voters rejected that Republican effort. People overwhelmingly voted to protect abortion rights in the state's constitution. It was not even close. Voters in Kansas rejected the amendment by nearly 60 percent. Turnout for that election soared. It was the largest turnout for a primary in the state's history. But beyond Kansas, that primary changed the entire midterm election landscape and gave Democrats bona fide momentum. Until that point, all expectations were that the party was headed for traditional and sizable midterm losses in Congress. But that night in Kansas, expectations shifted. Voters were engaged and they were showing up in a way that was largely unseen in modern political history. And then there was the special election in New York's 19th congressional district. Democrat Pat Ryan campaigned on abortion rights. He even released his first ad that highlighted reproductive rights minutes after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. Pat Ryan labeled his campaign, his election victory, as a referendum on abortion rights. And that strategy worked. Coupled with that, Democrats headed into November with significant legislative momentum in Congress. There was the American Rescue Plan and the Infrastructure Bill. There was the sweeping gun reform legislation, the first in decades, that President Biden signed up the day after Roe fell. In early August, Biden signed a landmark bill protecting veterans who are exposed to toxic burn pits. Democrats fought a long battle to get that one passed, and they did it. The same week, the president also signed the Chips and Science Act, a $52 billion investment in domestic chip manufacturing that's already started attracting international business to U.S. soil. And then there was the Inflation Reduction Act, President Biden's massive and signature bill that invested hundreds of billions in climate change and health care, fighting inflation and setting a corporate minimum tax rate. That bill that Democrats passed into law is the largest investment in combating climate change ever. So it was against that backdrop that Democrats headed into the midterm elections. And yet, In the closing weeks of that race, questions about the economy and inflation and crime seemed to cloud the midterm landscape for Democrats. Despite the utter insanity of the Republican field with candidates like Carrie Lake and Don Balduck and Doug Mastriano, the polls got really uncomfortably tight. There was finger pointing and questioning about the Democrat strategy and whether the party had focused on the wrong issues. Expectations once again reverted back to historical patterns and then got worse. But as it turns out, the message had been the right one. The candidates had been the right ones. 
against precedent, the Democrats did a lot better than expected. They outperformed all predictions. This great so-called red wave never materialized. And instead, Republicans squeaked out a nine-seat majority in the House. And the Democrats not only held on to the Senate, but they gained a seat with Raphael Warnock's victory in the Georgia runoff. At the state level, Democrats just knocked it out of the park. They flipped four state legislative chambers, both chambers in Michigan, the legislature in Minnesota, and the Pennsylvania House. They reelected Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, giving Democrats control of all three bodies in that King's key swing state. It's the first time the party has had full governing control in Michigan in nearly 40 years. Democrats fended off Republicans from having a supermajority in Wisconsin and in Kansas by defying the odds and maintaining control of the governorship in both states. So as we head into 2023 and the start of a new Congress, where do we go from here? What can we expect from this new Congress where Democrats will no longer be in control of the House and Republicans are eager to exert their power whenever and wherever possible? What can even get done with a divided Congress? Joining us now is former former Missouri Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill and Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Claire, Mark, it is great to close out the year with you. Um, And Claire, I just want to start with you first, since you are a creature of the Senate and know its contours well, and you are someone who has led fierce campaigns yourself. Is there anything about the midterm elections that surprised you? Well, listen, I I get it that Dobbs was an earthquake politically. I also understand that democracy was very important. But at the end of the day, Alex, this is about candidate quality. It really is. If you look in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz, if you look in many states where we won, look at Georgia, for example, when, when extreme candidates were nominated by the Republican Party, when Trump election deniers were nominated, what most of these states did is they said, you know, we're not going to go down that road. That is not what we're looking for in our elected representatives. So as we look towards the next election, and believe me, a lot of people in the Senate are already doing that. I know it feels like we just got 51. <laughs> 24. 24 is brutal for us. Brutal. We have Montana, we have West Virginia, we have Ohio, we have, once again, we have Pennsylvania, we have Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson just got reelected. We can talk about victories in Wisconsin, but Ron Johnson is a terrible senator, and he just got reelected. And then Arizona, where it was a squeaker, and Nevada, which was also a squeaker. Those states are all up in 2024. So now it's going to be about supporting incumbents, and finding the right candidates if there are any open seats, which it doesn't look like there's going to be. Mark, should Democrats be dismayed at that assessment, right? Like, because obviously, you know, there were there there was a coordinated message. Um, There were legislative victories. But I I mean, there is the reality that Republicans ran bonkers candidates. I mean, Herschel Walker was a bonkers candidate. So was Mehmet Oz. So was Doug Mastriano. So was Don Bolduc. Like it's one would think that Republicans won't do that again. So then what what should Democrats take away from their victories in the last election? I mean, the there is a very clear you know, glass half empty view of this, which is that Herschel Walker, Carrie Lake, um, you know, um, 
Adam Laxalt came extremely close. Mm -hmm. I mean, despite all of Herschel Walker's Herschel Walkerness and Carrie Lake's Carrie Lakeness, this close. It could have gone the other way very easily. And Claire is right. I mean, the map is absolutely brutal. This was actually supposed to be a very favorable Democratic map. They won one seat. Um, look, on a whole, it's been a great, it was a really good cycle. It was a surprisingly good cycle for Democrats. But no, I mean, this this is not a one race. And, and you know, I don't know if Dem, the problem is I don't think Republicans know how to learn a lesson here. I mean, this is not a rational party right now because Donald Trump is still ostensibly driving it. And if he falls in love with candidate X, in Montana and decides to go all in with him or her, um, you know, that's potentially great news for John Tester or whoever, you know, the vulnerable Democrat is. Do you, Claire, think that that Trump will hold that sway over the nominating process in terms of the Senate uh, in 2024? His his record is so abysmal from 2022. And yet it's, you know, He's done plenty of things to cause departures uh, from his loyal in terms of his loyalists. And, and yet we always have to end every sentence with. And yet he still is the center, the centrifugal force inside the GOP. What do you I mean, I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball. But at this moment, do you think he still has the power, the kingmaking power that he did in the last election? Well, he had a brutal cycle. And the last few weeks have not been kind to him. But I see what's going on in the media right now and a narrative about how Trump is losing his grip and how DeSantis is rising and Trump is going to be history in the rearview mirror any minute. And it kind of reminds me of all the polls that said the Democrats were going to have a brutal election in November and it was going to be this big red wave. I think we have to wait and see. I think right now DeSantis is an unknown to most of America. I think Republicans are being fed his name by a lot of people who don't want Trump. But DeSantis has problems, too. I mean, it's not like he's not wacky. I mean, he's banning books and, you know, arresting people on bogus charges who tried to vote that have fallen apart. I mean, all kinds of things he's done that will become front and center. He's an extreme guy. Uh, Joe Biden is not an extreme guy. Joe Biden is a middle of the road guy who won because he was middle of the road. So if they nominate either Trump or DeSantis, I still think the Democrats are in a commanding position if they stick to their knitting and the kitchen table stuff, health care, doing something about prescription drugs, continuing to bang away on the infrastructure victories and working on gun safety and the things they've gotten done. I think they're, you know, and it, it all presidential politics is going to come into play here because when you have a president at the top of the ticket, Every election is nationalized. Yeah. You, Mark, you've reported on uh, Ron DeSantis and his likability, which is actually a real factor when it comes to electing a president. But there's also his legislative record. And we've covered it a lot on the show, whether it's the Stop Woke Act, the Don't Say Gay Bill or his like fraudulent election police. He's done a lot of stuff that may play well in Florida, which is a strange laboratory. It's a state right. unlike any other. But could that become a political liability the more a light is shown on it on the national stage? Oh, no, no, there's no question about this. I mean, I think if you look at pretty much all of the consequential attention getting stuff that he has done, it hasn't worn particularly well. I mean, he got all this attention over the summer when he sent the, um, you know, the refugees from from Latin America to Martha's Vineyard, New York, wherever, you know, he did that. I mean, this is taxpayer money. I mean, when you sort of look when that thing sort of like unfolded, 
it was not a good look for Ron DeSantis. I can't imagine Florida's taxpayers, you know, beyond the initial spasm of, look, we've owned the liberals here, um, could be happy about this once these things play out. So there is this pattern, I mean, very Trump-like in some ways, which is that, you know, you get this spasm of attention and then once it unfolds, it becomes a bit of an embarrassment. Yeah, it's, I mean, his strategy has, seems to be so deeply rooted in owning the libs yeah. with no, literally nothing else as a goal. I mean, just shuttle asylum seekers to points north with no resources when they get there to own the libs on immigration, right. prevent them from saying things about racism and systemic injustice to own the libs and censor their language. I mean, this is the stuff that may play well among a very specific slice of an engaged GOP voter. But when it comes to, you know, the kind of person that someone wants to sit down and have a beer with, it's hard to imagine the meanness and the cruelty that it so animates these policies plays well with the national voter. Right. No, also, I mean, in his like haste to sort of like stroke the erogenous zones of, of Tucker Carlson or whoever. Did you really have no, to say I'm that? Sorry, I withdraw that. This is, if we want to <laughs> edit this. It's a family show. <laughs> uh, is it? Okay. So anyway, no, he, he did. But look, I mean, he went full anti-vaxxer here at the end of the year, yeah. right? I mean, he's basically, he wants to investigate people who are studying vaccines at the CDC. I mean, that's not where the country is. I mean, it might be where his like rarefied little conservative bubble in Florida or conservative media is, but it's not where the country is. So, you know, stay tuned. Claire, what should President Biden be thinking about as uh, in the closing hours of 2022 as we head towards a divided Congress and Trump, who's officially running, DeSantis, who's waiting in the wings and a presidential election that officially it starts sometime next year? Well, I think he's got a big decision to make. I, I don't think that he has made a final decision. So first and foremost, he's got to figure out if he wants to run again. And if he does, then he has to start looking at his record and building a narrative about why the country should trust him to navigate another four years. Um, and, you know, that's always a tall order. It's very it's not easy to get elected to a second term. I don't care who you are. So he's got that in front of him. And then also he's going to have to manage, a, a, you know, crazy town over in the House of Representatives. Uh, he's going to have to figure out if there's anything that McCarthy can get across the finish line that would be palatable to Americans. Um, and, and it's it's going to be tough because right now McCarthy's on bended knee to crazy town. Marjorie Taylor Greene and all of the others that are really the ones that can make him speaker and he can't be speaker without him. So you think Boehner had trouble with the Freedom Caucus. You think that Paul Ryan had trouble with the right wing. You haven't seen anything until you see what's going to happen in the House of Representatives with McCarthy and this very slim majority and everyone pushing and pulling to try to be more extreme than the next. This just seems like one of those situations where everybody needs to buckle up and brace for impact <laughs> because next year's going to be a doozy in the lower chamber. Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic and former Missouri Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill, the greats. Thank you guys both for your time and closing out the year with me. Thanks, Thank Alex. you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Coming up, the one, the only, my interview with the recently departed host of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah. His take on race in America, how the media should cover candidates like Donald Trump, and what life has in store for him after The Daily Show. Plus, I went down to Florida to explore DeSantis land. What I found just ahead. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. 
MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. On December 8th, Trevor Noah signed off from The Daily Show for the very last time, ending his epic seven-year run with the show. And just before he left, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with him for a wide-ranging interview. We spoke about the politics of race in America and the extreme polarization in our politics. Take a listen. Joining us now is Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show. Trevor is also the executive producer of the new 10-part documentary series, The Turning Point. Welcome, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure and honor. It's more more exciting for me, I guarantee, than you with your your (laughs) star-studded history. I don't think that's true. Um, You were sitting there through that long Mm wind-up, and I felt like it was really important to contextualize what is happening in this midterm election cycle amid the sort of, you know— hectic, frenetic pace of campaigns. There's something that is at the core of a lot of the campaigning that Mm -hmm. we're seeing. And as someone who sort of covers this, albeit from a distance, I wonder if any of this, if any of the dog whistles or the explicitly racist language or just the the otherization of people of color, whether any of that surprises you at this point. No. When I look at the buildup towards an election, especially in America at a time when people are struggling to make ends meet, when people are struggling to pay for their groceries, when people are wondering whether their next paycheck will still be enough to live the life that they've been living, it, it, it always triggers an idea or a, or a moment in time or a feeling that I'll have uh, whenever an election comes up. The same thing will happen in South Africa is you are able to get people to think the worst of others when they themselves are in the worst position. It's, you know, I, I used to think that in life we could just change people and make them better or make them more inclusive or, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I've come to realize it's, it's an unfortunate byproduct. As soon as people start thinking that they do not have, somebody can point at somebody else and say, that's why you do not have. And I think we're going to see that a lot more now. And unfortunately, if politicians do not understand that the, the, the cause, you know, is more important than the symptom, mm-hmm. we're going to be chasing a symptom forever. You know, you can try and change people's opinions on other people's race, on, on other people from other country with immigrants. Or, you can try and do that forever. But really what we've seen is time and time again, when people are struggling, they are most susceptible to ideas that will otherize other human beings. But some of these people are struggling, but some of them aren't, right? I mean, some of these people but have... been told they are. Right. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's the narrative of grievance oh, that gee, is in, yeah. intoxicating. Oh, definitely. The irony, in fact, in life I've realized in America is that the same image can have a completely different connotation 
depending on how people want that image to be used. Yeah. So, for instance, they, you'll see people being arrested and there'll be some politicians who say, see, things are getting better and crime is going down. Look, everything's getting better. These people are being arrested. And they could use that same image to say, well, look how many criminals are out there. But it's, just, it's the same image. It's just how you tell the story completely changes depending on what you're trying to do. Well, I mean, we, it feels like we have lost the common narrative too, right? Well, I think we're moving to a place where politics is now becoming the new religion of America. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's becoming the defining factor. When people meet you, that's the first thing they say now. Oh, you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. This is how I vote. This is, I don't know if you remember, there was a time when people didn't talk about that. They say your vote is your secret. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk, let's talk, talk about that at the table. We don't, we don't talk about voting. People just voted and then they live their lives. But now people live to talk about how they voted. And I think what it's created is a world where that supersedes everything. Do you think that's a bad thing or a good thing? Because, I mean, I, I think it's I, terrible. You think it's think terrible. It's terrible, but terrible but it's terrifying. How can the political landscape is so divided? Yes. The set of values inherent in each party is so extraordinarily different that it seems almost irreconcilable that for to ask someone to forget that those are someone else's values. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's like, it's, you know, sometimes making heads or tails of the American system requires you to start at one point. You know, have you ever tried to untangle a bunch of cords in your drawer? Yes. Like, trying to find one charger? Oh, yes. And you you think you found, and then it takes you to this charger and you go to that charger. That's what it feels like sometimes looking at America and what's happening in the country. Because you see it reflected in other parts of the world. But America's system is unique in the conversations that people have and why they have them. And like what you're saying about the polarization is it's, it's just going to become worse because we don't live in the same world anymore. Yeah. You know, we would all meet in one place, whether it was for the news, you know, where people watching, whether it was Walter Cronkite or whoever it was, people would watch the same news and then argue about it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were watching even TV shows, you know, the other day, you know, when you saw, when you saw that um, Angela Lansbury passed away, and I thought, man, I, I Murder, she wrote every single episode with my mom in South Africa. That was a family thing. Mm-hmm. How many shows do we have like that? And not the shows, but how many moments? Everybody's watching their own TV. Yeah. Kids are in a different world to their parents. Parents are in a different world to their parents. And so you have this, this, this unshared reality that we're all existing in. Everyone's sitting on a train in the subway. Mm-hmm. Nobody is reading or experiencing the same thing other than maybe the dancers. But that's, that's about it. But I think what that's done is it's created a hyper-individualistic society where we don't realize that we are not living in the same world. And you can't, you can't There's no bridging anything it. There's no bridging it. if you don't agree on the same world. When you were growing up in South Africa, apart from watching Murder, She Wrote, did you think that America had the whole racism thing figured out more than South Africa did? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think... I, I had I had a caricaturized version of what America was, you yeah. know. So I was watching Family Matters, I was watching Different Strokes. I was it it just you know it was great. Beverly Hills Cop, all of mm-hmm. all of these movies gave me an idea of what America was, and I don't think it was too far from what America was trying to be. Funny enough, again because everybody was coming together and watching the same thing. Maybe there was some sorts of world that people aspired to, even if they couldn't achieve it. But but what I learned when I moved to America is what makes a difference to South Africa is. We are very blatant about what was happening. And, and I always say, as crazy as it is to say out loud, I think the one benefit of the apartheid government's extreme hubris in what they were doing was that you didn't have to uncover it. Right. They said, it's explicit. we consider people of color 
black people, Indian people, colored people, whoever they may be, we consider them inferior. And that is why we treat them this way. Mm-hmm. But in America over time, and we know the history of it, but over time, politicians realized that that wasn't suitable, that wasn't acceptable in public. And so they learned how to code the language. They learned how to change it so that people didn't hear the word black. People didn't hear the word Hispanic or Mexican people, but they thought it, they right. felt it. And that, that has become more powerful because now instead of just fighting racism, you have to spend half your time trying to prove it exists. Right. Well, it also makes the people who are racist feel better, right? Because they don't have to oh, yeah. be explicitly racist. They can just say... I would even say some of them don't feel that they're racist. I think that that's true. I think... Yeah, they, I think some people go, I, I didn't even think about race. Coming up, my trip to Florida to take a look at the lab Governor Ron DeSantis is creating and what he's been experimenting with on race, gender, and education. But first, more from my in-depth interview with Trevor Noah on his future plans. That's next. We'll be right back. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. A few months ago, I had the wonderful opportunity of speaking to someone who knows the media inside and out. Trevor Noah, who recently signed off as the host of The Daily Show after an epic seven-year run. He sat down with me to talk about how the media has covered everything from Donald Trump to extremist Republicans. Those two are kind of similar. We also spoke about his decision to leave The Daily Show and his plans for the future. Take a look. I've really been lucky to embark on, you know, multiple journeys. I, I've, I've got, I've, I've had the pleasure of executive producing this docuseries, working with fantastic producers and directors, you know, filmmakers. Um, I've had, you know, the pleasure of doing stand-up in and around America and, and the rest of the world. I've had the pleasure of hosting The Daily Show for seven years. But, you know, at, at some point, you, you have to figure out how you want to use your time, mm-hmm. where you want to be, and how you want to spend you know, your heartbeats, as I call them. Yeah. You know, they're, they're constantly going. It's a finite number. Of yeah. That. And, you know, COVID, I think COVID gave everybody a moment to sit down and think, who are you? Yeah. Who are you trying to be? How are you spending your time? Who are you spending it with? Why are you spending it that way? And so I realized, you know, I, I, I would never want to be in a position where people feel like I'm, I'm not giving my all. And so I thought I will give my all until I feel like I even have a little bit left, but let me take what I have left and then try everything else that inspires me, whether it be docuseries or being in movies or, you know, doing more stand-up or whatever it may be. You have a perspective on the media that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people 
don't have. And I wonder how you would grade us at this stage in the game, because I was talking to Rachel Maddow, my great predecessor in this hour, and we were talking about the responsibility here as journalists, right? When you have a character like Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. on one hand, Mm -hmm. you have to cover some of the things he's saying and doing, but how do you do it in a way that doesn't give him Mm -hmm. the megaphone? Do you think we've gotten better how do you, how do you, what, so, can, so, we, what can we do better? So here, here's what I think happened. I think America has blurred the lines between news and entertainment for so long yeah. that at some point entertainment took over and became the news. And if there's one thing Donald Trump has always known how to do, it's how to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. And you look at the very inception, the very beginning of the idea of Donald Trump being on the news. It was campaigns reaching out to CNN and saying, hey, you need a cover. This is funny. This is great. This is great for us. I think a lot of Democrats have to look at themselves and say, why did we encourage this? You know, I've spoken about this on my show. The fact that there are still Democratic, you know, machines that are funding extreme Republicans, like basically putting them forward. I think it's gross negligence. You know, forget everything else that that you're trying to do in life. It is grossly negligent to say, I believe this person is going to destroy democracy. But you know what I'll do? I'm going to take money that people have donated to our campaigns and use it to prop them up because I think they will be easier to beat. But are you willing to take the risk that this person may be easier to beat? You you don't remember what happened with Donald Trump? It turned out he was a lot harder to beat than you thought. And so, you know, when when it comes to the grading, I don't grade anybody because I, you know, I'm not a master at this. I don't even claim to be, but I look at what people could do differently. I think the media learned a lesson. I think every news outlet went, oh, wow, we thought it was a joke. We played with the joke mm-hmm. and now he turned it on us. And I don't know if the genie will ever go back into the bottle, but I think the media can ask itself questions about the whys. Why? Why do we put people on? What are we trying to get from this? Is it a ratings push? If it is, almost be honest. Just say, you know what? We're doing this to get ratings and that, that, that's that. Don't hide it. Don't add icing to the cake to try and make it seem like it is what it isn't. And so be more explicit like they yeah, are in South Africa. Yeah, just be more explicit. Say this is what it is. We're doing this because it's great for ratings. Do it and go ahead. But I, I think a lot of the time, American news will will masquerade. Will will we'll live in this world of oh no, it's this is so important. It's like it's it's great for ratings, mm-hmm. and I understand that challenge. But also acknowledge that there is a country that is watching what you are creating. We have much more ahead tonight. Stay with us. By now, you have heard his name a lot. Republican governor of Florida and likely 2024 presidential contender Ron DeSantis. Since taking office in 2019, Governor DeSantis has been on a crusade against seemingly everything, especially when it comes to public education. If a conversation about a student's race or nationality makes a student feel, quote, discomfort, then it can't be taught in the classroom. An inclusive curriculum? Nope. Anything, quote, woke, whatever that means? Nope. So DeSantis signed the Stop Woke Act. Sexual orientation and gender identity? Nope. DeSantis signed the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. Earlier this year, I took a trip to Florida to hear from students and educators and what they say on the ground about these new policies and Governor DeSantis's efforts to reshape public education in Florida. Here's what students and a local school board member had to say. I think it's really frightening how we already have such limited access to all this information, important parts of history, and now we're restricting it even more. It's mm-hmm. very scary that there's going to be more ignorance. It's really pitiful to think that now 
like kids that are going into school, younger kids, younger generations, the people who are being made into the future, yeah. are going to have no idea of what's going on because we can't pick and choose the past. We can't pick and choose what to teach in history classes. Well, I mean, I think the governor thinks you can pick and choose mm-hmm. what you teach. I guess I wonder, like, are students going to accept that? It sounds like you think that some of them are. I think that if that's what we're taught from a young age, then that's what we're going to accept and start to, you know, repeat back to other kids. Tell me if you could recount the experience you've had facing the, the animated crowd of, of people who are proponents of this anti-CRT stuff. I mean, you understand in a visceral way the passion that is ignited when you talk about this stuff. You know, I've had people on my front lawn protesting. I've had people send me death threats. I've had people try to recall me. And none of that has anything to do with CRT. None of that has anything to do with LGBTQ. They just use those as tools to target and attack me. And truthfully, the reason I feel like I I even had to deal with any of that animosity is because I'm a loud, proud, dominant Democrat on this school board. I mean, I guess so what you're saying is this is basically for a political movement that is much more about Republican power than actually some deep-seated emotional belief about correcting some wrongs in schools. And I guess I wonder, on the other side of the coin, do you feel like you are equipped with the tools to counter what has been a pretty successful multi-pronged effort to change the whole system of education in the Florida public school system. I hate to be a pessimist, but the reality is, is we need the voters to get out and vote. Um, If we have these people in office, there's really not a whole lot we can do because they put this into law. Do you hear from teachers who are grappling with the changes that are going to be in place in the classroom this fall? All the time. Um, People asking for answers to how do we implement these laws or these policies? How is this going to affect my classroom and my instruction? And one of the things that's really frightening about these laws that are passed is that the state passed them with no instruction. What do you think people who are concerned about the direction that things are heading in, what should they be focused on in the months and year ahead? I'm just so scared about the future of public education here in Florida, and I'm scared that it will like create this movement across the nation. This is a concerted effort to defragment public education, to make it unstable in order to privatize education, right? So we've got over 9,500 instructional vacancies in the state of Florida, and we're starting school tomorrow. Um, The fact that we are making them feel like they can literally be brought to court for teaching actual facts about history um, or about real families that are in their classroom. At the same exact time, we have a governor that's taking over what power the school boards have, putting in place essentially school board candidates that he chooses to be on the school board. I mean, it's scary. I also had the opportunity to speak to a Florida high school teacher who blew the whistle on state-sponsored training to provide it to teachers and decided to speak out about what exactly was being instructed. Here's what she told me about how the state trains its teachers about slavery. Take a listen. The only thing I can find in this slide, in this entire presentation about enslaved people, it's one slide and it says less than 4% of slavery in the Western Hemisphere was in colonial America. The number of enslaved people increased in America through birth. What are what is happening here in the slide? Yeah, so this is a map, um, kind of showing how the transatlantic slave trade 
brought enslaved people to both of the Americas. There's a heavy emphasis that those people were brought to South America. It's a much bigger era. Right. Um, and where we're at in North America, you know, our colonies are a very small sliver. And there was this heavy emphasis that most of our enslaved people were born here, um, almost to say it was less bad. To enslave children. Right. Right. For generations. <laughs> to say they were born here, we didn't steal them and bring them on a boat um, is kind of what it felt like. Sort of making a difference between slaves born in mm-hmm. the United States and those born in Africa and suggesting somehow that slave life, that, that our moral debt is less because they were born into slavery as opposed to snatched from their homes. Yes, that's definitely how I felt they were portraying this information. And also that less than 4% of slavery in the Western Hemisphere was in colonial America. Is that to minimize the number of slaves that were here, which still numbered in the millions? I believe so. This year, I also traveled to Wisconsin to talk to a local elections official there about the threats he and his staff had been facing in the run-up to the midterms. Dane County, which includes Madison, is one of the two counties in Wisconsin where Donald Trump demanded a recount in 2020. To give you a sense of the key role that Dane County played in the last presidential election, the official I spoke to recently received a subpoena from the Justice Department's special counsel investigating January 6th and Donald Trump's efforts to subvert that election. The subpoena asks for any and all communications with Trump and his campaign through Inauguration Day 2021. Here's what Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald told me about threats to his office. When did you start doing this job? Ten years ago. And, and like, what was it like ten years ago, this job? Oh, it's great. We had the first same-sex marriage license done here. We drew marriages out on the front of the steps, and it it was fun. But it's become sort of a darker version of that now. I am worried about my staff. I'm worried about the staff across the hall. That's the city clerk's office. Yeah. They, there isn't adequate security in this building. Uh, this building wasn't set up to be secure. It was, it was set up to be open. Yeah. I mean, your own staff was glad that they could just walk right in. I'm like, well, that's kind of the problem. They didn't have to go through weapon screening. And that's a good thing. That's an open government. But for us, you know, you can't just be able to walk in off the street and come all the way back to my office like you used to be able to do. And we have stopped the steel rallies a block away. Yeah. And it wouldn't be hard to just point that down here at our office. So, Have you received death threats? I've gotten some vague ones. What are vague death threats? Oh, like you should, uh, you've committed sedition. Um, There's a lot of that. But they're they're just vague enough. You know, when you talk to the police, they're always like, it almost feels like a game of Clue. Like they have to have an iron pipe in the billiards room or something. And they have to tell you the time they're going to attack you for them to listen to it. But... That, that's been a problem for clerks around the country. Uh, but they're just vague enough that nothing happens with them. Do you worry about your safety? Do you worry about the safety of your colleagues? It's more like Russian roulette because it seems like something has to happen that ties to this place. Because mm-hmm. I remember one time the president tweeted about my office, but he didn't say anything negative, And it felt like it felt like a click in a chamber, like it just missed. Nothing happened. I just have to stop and note that, like, this is the county clerk's office, and you have plexiglass and panic buttons. Like, what has happened to American democracy? Yeah, it's not a good sign. There are people who—these are people who are involved in the running of government and elections. Like, this requires a totally different set of skills to manage, A, an incredibly stressful situation, but then also resolve it. Like, that's a lot to ask of a clerk. 
what is the general emotional like tenor of people who come here and are really angry? Like, I would assume they're all like kind of. Yeah. The, or do, to this office, we didn't get we haven't gotten much of that. Yeah. It was that the recount was really on full display. Yeah. They were uh, like they were closed arms, yeah. red faced, yelling, not listening. How responsive has law enforcement been to your concerns about threats that you may be facing? Well, they've they've been helpful. Um, I think part of the problem, though, is that they deal with people getting threatened all day long. Yeah. So when they hear, you know, I got a threat on email that from a proton email that you can't trace, it's hard for them to do a lot about it. Uh, and for them, it's kind of common. But, you know, what I try to explain to them is, but it's meant to destabilize our democracy. Because if people leave who know what they're doing, who are they replaced by? Right. And then what happens? They make mistakes, and it just continues to fuel the cycle of, aha, we have a, a scandal. Ah, see, it's all messed up or it's fraud. And that serves, again, the interest of raising money online or, or intimidating election officials. We'll be right back. One final note before we say goodnight. Alex Wagner tonight has officially been on the air for just over four months now. It literally literally does take a village to launch a new show and to put it on night after night. And while you just see me sitting at this table, there is an army of ridiculously smart and talented people, really, truly, working behind the scenes to put this show on the air each and every night. Here are the wonderful people who bring you not only Alex Wagner tonight, but also The Rachel Maddow Show. Roll them!
that does it for us tonight. Thanks for joining us. More ahead on MSNBC right after this.